You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hello, Resonate. Thank you for joining us here today. I'm glad you're here and excited to dive into week two of Back to Acts as we look at the book of Acts and, uh, and try to learn from the early church what we can apply to our church here today as we ask the question, why does the church matter? Does it matter? Should we give emphasis and attention to the church? Obviously, it's Resonate Church. You know what our answer is going to be to that, but we want to delve into this book of the Bible and see what God has to say to us here. My name is Matthew Young. I'm the site pastor over in Moscow, one of the pastors in our network of churches, and uh, uh, love getting a chance to talk about the book of Acts. This has been a book that has been so meaningful to us as a church. As, as we look at this narrative, this story of uh, the, the early church and how it started and what we can learn about how God works in and through His people, praying that He would do similar things through us as a church, and we want to be able to do that even here today. Um, love a good story, and one of my favorite forms of story and, and ways of telling story, especially in TV shows, is, uh, is when the opening scenes find ourselves in the middle of a story. Um, when you find, you know, like, what is going on? Something crazy happening. And uh, before they answer the question of what's really going on, all you know that it's crazy, whatever's going on, uh, they say, hey, 48 hours, 48 hours earlier, this was happening. And so then you rewind, flashback to how we got to that place. Uh, I don't know if that made sense to you, but I, I remember a TV show that I first remember seeing this was a TV show called Alias. I don't know if you guys have ever saw that show back in the early 2000s. My wife and I watched this. Someone recommended it to us, and uh, we lived in downtown Portland. We would walk uh, home on the weekends um, from doing ministry at Portland State University to our apartment, and uh, we'd stop off at Blockbuster, and we'd rent an, uh, a season of Alias, and we'd go home and binge watch it over the weekend. And I remember that, that TV series was so, like, it was, they had these epic episodes that would end on a cliffhanger. It seemed like every week. You're like, oh, I can't wait till the next one. Or when you had, all you had to do is push next. Uh, you just keep watching them and watching them. It was so, so gripping. Uh, but some of my favorite episodes were just that one. Um, uh, Alias, the, the main character, Sydney Bristow, would find herself in this crazy situation where she's surrounded by guns and bad guys and dangling over something on a rope and like, what's going to happen? What, how did she get in this place? And they'd say, well, 48 hours earlier, this is what was going on. And uh, I loved those, that setup to the story. I think as we look at the book of Acts, what we see as the origin story of the church. We see the beginning of how the church started. And then as we look at ourselves here today, we find ourselves almost mid-story of saying, hey, how do we find ourselves here? How do we get to this place? We find ourselves right in that moment if we look around and say, what's going on in the world today? What is going to happen to the church in America? What's going to happen in our church and resonate in the coming years with all these big questions? And I think in that moment, it's really helpful to look back at the beginning of the church and to see God's interaction with and through His people, how the Holy Spirit came and moved in their midst and, and created a movement of the, the people of God in the ancient Middle East in the first century and what He did there. And for it to help us understand how we got to where we are and to answer the big questions that we're asking ourselves even now about our church and the church and why church matters um, by looking back at our origin. 
So if you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And uh, one of the big questions we're asking each week here is, uh, during this series, is why does the church matter? And uh, I think one of the big things that we would say is, well, the church matters because it has had such a huge impact on the world. If you, as you look throughout history, and historians will continually point to, especially in, in Western culture and civilization, we look to the influence of the Christian church on how it has shaped who we are as a people um, today. This has showed up in lots of different ways, and, and even historians, they, they look back on this and say, hey, the impact of the church has been tremendous. Uh, one historian, uh, Kenneth Scott uh, Latteret, who's a, he wrote several volumes on Christian history, um, he, he says, you know, trying to look back and at the impact and, and, and asking questions of, if we look at what the church did, we have to ask questions of how did this happen, why did this happen? He says it like this, the reason for Christianity's success is, is, is um, several things. He lists, uh, more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never uh, quite escaped from its uh, racial bonds. Christianity, however, glorified in its appeal to Jews and to Gentiles, to Greek and barbarians. The Greek and Roman philosophies of, of that day never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated um, and to the moral and socially uh, cultured. But Christianity drew the lowly and the unlettered. It also developed a philosophy that, on, that of, uh, developed a philosophy of its own, which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity was for both sexes, where two of its main rivals were primarily for men. And the church uh, welcomed both rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. He says the question must be raised why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear first in the world through Christianity. He says there's been no other religion before then, no other religion since that was like Christianity. And then all these different groups of people came from different places in society, different cultures, different languages. Uh, the, the Christianity did not remain bound by um, one specific ethnic group or one specific geographic location, but it spread. How did this movement take place that involved all these different kinds of people? In fact, as we look today, the, the, um, we see that the values, um, the, um, the values and positive cultural pillars of our society have been greatly influenced and derived from, uh, from Christians' influence, dating back all the way to the early church. Things like uh, love your enemy instead of killing your foes when they wrong you, uh, to forgive those who harm you um, indefinitely. All of these ideas we know are Christian ideas. And maybe you say, well, I don't, even, I don't see those uh, in the people in my life. There's people who are mean to me and they don't forgive me or whatever. Maybe you experience that in interpersonal relationships. But if you think about our culture and our society, the things we value uh, most, we, um, those things come from... Uh, Christian origins. Think about something like the Nobel Peace Prize. Back in the first century, there was nobody giving out Nobel Peace Prizes to anyone. That was not something that, uh, that was honored and valued among cultures in that day. And in fact, if you were to give a peace prize to a ruler of some country or a, a nation, well, then all the neighboring uh, countries would say, well, that's going to be the next nation we, we invade. They care about peace, and that's not what we're about. Um, if they're going to forgive us, then we'll just take advantage of that. It seems preposterous, but yet Today, that's, we value that highly. We celebrate those kinds of things. Um, that's because of Christians in, Christianity's influence on the world. Uh, things like care for the poor. There were other religions that had care for the poor, but not to the extent that Christianity did. Things like orphanages, even hospitals. All of that find their origin in the early church or, or, or Christianity's influence. Things like uh, universal human rights for people. Every human being has value and deserves human rights. 
Historians point to Christianity as the beginning of this idea. Christianity has had significant impact on the world, and we have to ask that question, how did that happen? Why is that true? Why is the early, starting in the early church through um, ancient Middle East, Mediterranean area, why, how was that spread all over the world across multiple different continents, languages, ethnic groups, uh, people from um, different socioeconomic groups? How has Christianity done that? How did Christianity through the early church have that kind of impact on culture and society? Once again, we'll find ourselves in Acts chapter 2 today. And and last week we looked at Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said, hey, uh, I'm giving you a mission. And before he collected the people together and called them the church, he gave them something to do. He gave them a purpose. And so this group of people had a purpose, and then he began to form them together into the church. And Acts chapter 2 is that story of him forming together. He had instructed them to go back, to pray, to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then there was this event happening in Jerusalem at the time, this thing called Pentecost, where all these people come from all these different places, all over the ancient Middle East and Mediterranean, West Asia and uh, and North Africa. Jews that had come and they'd make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go and worship and gather together and celebrate uh, Pentecost. And so there are all these people in town and the disciples were gathered together, they were praying, and all of a sudden that's when the Holy Spirit decided to show up. And as you read in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, you hear this rush, the sound of this rushing wind. And you saw it look like fire lighting on the, on the believers' heads. And then all of a sudden they began to speak in these other languages, the languages of the people that had come to town for this event. And they began to proclaim the gospel in these other languages they'd never spoken before. But all of a sudden, this miraculous way, the Spirit began to work through them to spread, to move forward this mission uh, that they'd been given through these people. And then Peter, as we see there in, in Acts chapter 2, he, he preaches this amazing sermon. Um, and at the conclusion of the sermon, it says that over 3,000 people, in verse 41, 3,000 people were added to the number. You go from, uh, from roughly 100 or so people gathered there to now 3,000 people as the, the gospel went out on that day. And so then we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 is what we'll read here today. And it's, it's essentially what happened to those people, they, that huge number gathered uh, responded 3,000. All of a sudden, now we have this really big mass of people. What happened to them? What did they do? What did that look like? And Acts chapter 2, verse 42 begins to describe it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the, through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any, who, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This verse 42 begins to describe the first picture of the early church that we have. And the first descriptor highlights something. It highlights their devotion. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves in response to all the Holy Spirit was doing in them and in their midst, this coming Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. He said, wait on this, it's going to be great. And what it prompted them to do was to be devoted, to be devoted. And we'll get to this in a moment. They're devoted to four things. But what does this word devoted mean? Uh, One commentator that I read said this, um, this devotion uh, meant that they continued in faithful adherence to the community 
and they were persistently, uh, they were persisting obstinately, <laughs> persisting obstinately to these things. Um, I, this may seem foreign, but even just in our basic English language, uh, outside of the Greek, that when we say we're devoted to something, it means that we're giving something to the object of our attention. If I'm devoted to something, then I'm giving something to it. So what I mean by that is like, if I'm working on a project, then I'm giving my time and my thoughts and my attention to this project. Um, over the Christmas break, I had some time off and I was working on a few Christmas gifts for some friends and found myself out in the garage uh, working with some wood and putting some things together and painting some things. And um, in, the in the midst of that, I was devoted to these projects. I found myself just lost in them. Hours would go by as I worked on these things and, uh, and I'd find myself lying in bed at night thinking about how I'm going to piece this thing together. I was devoted. I, I was giving something to this project. I have a friend who amuses me to hear him talk about it, but his is a profession. He's a uh, computer engineer and he codes for uh, computer code for a living. And he loves it so much. He loves his job and loves what he does. And he says sometimes he'll find himself at night just laying there, piecing together code in his head, devoted to this thing that he's doing. As we read what the, the new, uh, this New Testament church was doing is they devoted, they gave themselves. They were giving time and energy and thoughts to these things. Um, I think many times as we look at, uh, or when we look at this story of the, the birth of the early church, uh, it, it mirrors the birth of Jesus. We just got done coming out of the Christmas season, and as a church, we looked at several different stories throughout, uh, throughout the story of the birth narrative of Jesus. And uh, one of the things we see there is the Holy Spirit is very involved in some ways we don't completely comprehend. Uh, how did Mary get pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit? What did that look like? I don't fully understand. I don't know. What did Pentecost look like when the Holy Spirit coming on? What were those flames of fire on their heads? What did that sound like when they were preaching the gospel? I don't know. So the Holy Spirit is involved. Some supernatural things were happening that we don't fully comprehend or understand, but we're amazed by it. And it's a sign that God was at work. But also what we see there is devotion. We see that in the birth, uh, the birth story of, of Jesus, um, that God was devoted. God gave part of himself. God gave his own son. God sent himself, Emmanuel, God with us. That God was devoted to us. That he left the confines of eternal glory to come and be confined to a human body human body, a baby human body, to come and be with us. In the same way, in the birth story of the church, we see that they were devoted, following in the same way, just as God was devoted to us, the early believers, the Holy Spirit prompted them to be devoted to God and devoted to one another. So let's look at what that looked like um, in, in this passage and, and what were they devoted to? Uh, four things. Uh, the apostles' teaching to each other, to the presence of God, and to prayer. Let's look at what that means. Uh, number one, the apostles' teaching. It says there in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, and so daily, they were getting together and they were saying, we want to give ourselves to this. We want to give ourselves to understanding what the apostles are teaching. This gospel they are proclaiming is unlike anything we've ever heard before. We're familiar with the Old Testament. We're familiar with the, the teachings of our, of our Jewish religion, but you're adding something to it. This, this promised Messiah, you're saying that Jesus is the one. And so without a doubt, what the apostles were teaching, they were communicating about what Jesus said. Jesus, in fact, said, hey, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey what I've told you, and I'll be with you as you do it. So Jesus was teaching them, or taught them to go and teach. And so without a doubt, they were teaching the things they heard Jesus say. And just as we see in these sermons in the book of Acts and we see in, uh, in the other epistles throughout the New Testament, we see even how Jesus taught after his resurrection. He was connecting the dots between the Old Testament and what they were seeing fulfilled in Jesus. 
And so without a doubt, the, the apostles were gathering with these Jewish people that had come to Jerusalem and explained to them, look, look at the Old Testament, look at these Old Testament passages. See, Jesus is all throughout here. It's all pointing to the Messiah, and he fulfills these things, these prophecies. He uh, affirms these stories. And, uh, and so they were teaching that. And without a doubt, he was teaching about his resurrection. That's what sets Jesus apart from everybody else. All of the rabbis in first century Israel uh, was that Jesus died, but then he resurrected. And that's what sets Christianity apart and our faith apart from all of the world religions is the one we follow. Never uh, died, but didn't stay dead. He resurrected and is alive. And so they were teaching those things. And the people were hungry for this teaching. They were hungry to hear from him. And as the Holy Spirit worked in the new converts, they had a hunger to know these things, to understand these things, and to align their lives with these teachings that they were hearing from the apostles. They couldn't get enough, and they said, I want my life to be in alignment with what Jesus said. And as we think about ourselves, we have to ask these questions in light of this, in light of this early expression of the church, we have to ask ourselves, do we hunger for the apostles' teachings like that? Do we give ourselves, do you give yourself up for it? Do you give yourself to it? We have a thing in our church that we refer to as DT, DTs. Sometimes we have, get together in DT groups. Um, you can go to our website, resonate.net slash D-T, and you can read every day a new devotional, a new, some devotional material for your devotional time, your DT time, where you can read a passage of Scripture and there's some commentary there to help explain or help maybe prompt some questions from that passage of Scripture for you to process and journal about. It's a great resource that we make available to you and we want you to engage. Either that or something else that helps you engage the Word, to engage the teachings. Something we have available to us as followers, as believers in 2022 is something that the church didn't have then. We have both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and we are blessed by that reality. But there's so much teaching that we can gain from that. There's so much information that we can understand about who God is from that. And we need to be devoted to that, to give ourselves to that, to have devotional time. I remember I've heard that term all my life, uh, surrounded by church culture. Did you, have, did you have your devotional time today? And for whatever reason, I don't know, because I heard it when I was young or what, I've always thought that's kind of cheesy, that term. And even the fact that we call it devotional time in our church or DT time, I've always kind of cringed a little bit. I don't know why that is, just a personal thing. But this passage of Scripture has helped change my perspective on that. that. This is what the New Testament church was doing. They were devoting themselves. They were giving themselves to God and through these teachings. They, were, they wanted to know Him. They wanted to know more about Him. They wanted to understand Him and understand His ways. And for us, there's an invitation for us to do the same thing. Now, there's a question for us, though, that we need to ask ourselves. Are we truly engaging devotional time or... Are we engaging what I'll call here today dessert time? Here's what I mean by that. Devotional time looks like this. I'm giving myself to this, just as I've explained. My attention, my thoughts, my time is given to this, not just to the teachings, but to the God who's behind these things. I'm giving myself to this. I'm sacrificed. I'm giving something up. Um, I'm asking the question, God, what do you want from me? I'm, give, I'm bringing to you my anxieties. I'm bringing to you my worries and my fears. I'm bringing to you my frustration and my anger. And I'm saying, God, here, take these things from me and give me, what you, give me what you have. Replace them. Take something from me. I'm devoted to him. That's what a devotional time looks like. And that's how we need to come to God if we're devoted. The opposite of that looks like dessert time. What do I mean by that? Well, dessert, we all know it's something sweet. Uh, it's something a little extra after your meal. It's not necessary, but, you know, it's good. If it's good, I'll, I'll taste it. I'll try it. The waiter comes to your table when you get done with your meal and he says, hey, would you like some dessert? Uh, you're like, well, yeah, let me look at the menu. If there's something there that piques my interest, I'll, I'll check it out. And the question is, do we, do we approach devotional time like that? 
like, hey, I've got my life. It's pretty much put together. I've already got the, you know, the trajectory of my life set. Uh, I've got everything figured out. But I'm looking, I might look to God every once in a while to sprinkle something a little extra on top. Just a little dessert, something that tastes good or something that's helpful. Um, <laughs> when we go to, when we use our devotional time like this, when we try to, to engage the teachings of the Bible like this, then essentially we're just asking the question, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this in the sense that, hey, what will make me feel better about me? Uh, what affirms um, my preconceived thoughts or what affirms what I already believed before I came to it? So I'm not giving anything up when I come to the Word, when I come to the Scriptures, when I come to the Apostles' teaching. I'm not giving anything up, but I'm just looking for something to add to it. I'm looking for something, uh, some positive affirmation of what I already believe. And then we judge our a devotional time, where we ju de judge a devotional material um, by, did I get anything out of it? And we never ask ourselves, did I give anything of myself? Did I give up anything as I engage this devotion? Did I let go of anything and release it to God? Did I, uh, did I ask God to change me? Did I ask God to change my preconceived thoughts and beliefs? Did I give anything up? I encourage you to resonate to, to, to engage in devotional time and not desert, uh, not, um, desert time. We often take what the world gives us and we look for some inspirational word to add to what we already receive from the world. I was reading an article just, just today about how... Um, we engage so much media, social media, uh, news media, through our apps and through uh, various different places, as we know. So much of it is from the world during a week. And so little of the stuff we engage oftentimes, the average American, the average Christian, comes from the Word. But we need to devote ourselves to what God teaches us and maybe have a few other things that we sprinkle onto what God teaches and, and, and clarify through what God teaches. Let's look at what the world provides and the, the out, those outside media sources and say, hey, let's judge that based on what God says, not the other way around. Here's the reality. When we think about the church impacting the world, the early church changed the world because they devoted themselves to the teaching that was not of this world. They devoted themselves to the teaching that was not of this, of this world. That's how change happened. They didn't seek teachings that succumbed to their wants, but they submitted their wants to the teaching of what God wants. They didn't, they didn't just follow what they wanted, but they said, what does God want? And I'll submit to that. And the question is, uh, do you feel the Spirit creating in you a hunger to know what the Bible says and to understand what God teaches? Do you sense a hunger in you to want to know? I promise you, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Do you have questions about who God is and what He thinks about your life and the world around us? Go and engage the apostles' teaching. Go and engage the scriptures that we have to, uh, that have been given to us and feast on that main course and let it nourish you just like it did the early church. Devote yourselves to that. The second thing they devoted themselves to was to each other. They devoted themselves to each other. It says there that they devoted themselves to fellowship. This is the word, the Greek word here is koinonia. It's a word that you find throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, that communicated this idea of the fellowship of believers. Uh, the best definition, there's a unique sharing of themselves with each other in close relationship, intimate relationship. Um, as we read this passage, we see that they did things together, uh, both in big groups and in small groups. They had this huge group of 3,000 people, but you also see them going, uh, doing things together. The words repeated throughout this passage. Um, they went together to the temple. They went together to each other's homes. They didn't all fit in one home, so it had to be in smaller groups, uh, breaking bread and eating together and, and sharing what they had with each other and being thankful uh, for the meals that they had together. 
They did these things together. They didn't just have surface level relationships, but they were devoted. They gave themselves to each other. You may ask the question, how is this possible? <laughs> all these strangers that were in the city for this temporary time uh, during Pentecost and all these new people that are being added to this community of believers, how did they engage those kinds of, those kinds of relationships so quickly? Well, the reality is that they knew that they'd been rescued through God's mercy and His grace. And it changed the way they related to each other. It changed the way they saw themselves and it changed the way they saw each other. And so instead of uh, trying to keep each other at a distance at arm's length and say, hey, yeah, let's keep this surface level and let's not get too intimate, let's not get too close, let's not get too tight, all of those barriers and walls between each other and masks between each other uh, fell away and they got really close. And they said, hey, I know I messed up and I've got issues. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Praise God for that. Who are you? I know that you're a sinner saved by grace and God has brought us together on purpose. Uh, the Spirit was binding, to get, binding them together. Um, is this beautiful picture. In fact, it's the answer of one of Jesus' prayers. It's the answer of one of Jesus' prayers. At the end of uh, John, um, he's meeting with his disciples on the night before he's crucified. In John 17, Jesus begins to pray a prayer over his disciples. And he says this, verse 17, verse 11, and then again in verse 22, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's praying for his disciples. God, help them to be connected to one another. Help them to be an intimate relationship in this koinonia fellowship with each other. He's praying that for them. And then again in verse 22, similarly, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He wanted them to be connected to one another. And in the broader passage here is he's praying this not just for the disciples that were sitting around him in the upper room on that night, but he says, I pray this for the people that they're going to share this message with, for the people that will hear them communicate this, bring them into this oneness. Just as I, the Father, and the Son have this oneness and this connection, may this community of people, he began, essentially he's praying for the church there. And we see the answer, God answered, the Father answering his prayers through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And as a church, this is what we want for us. To have big groups to gather on Sundays and our Sunday gatherings. Um, we meet in each other's uh, proximity to each other. We worship, uh, singing songs together, all reflect, or thinking and processing through this, these same truths. Where we hear teaching together. Where we all think about these things together. Uh, to experience that in the large group. But also to have small group where we're not just in rows looking back at each other's heads, but in circles and in each other's face where we're connecting one-on-one -on -one and talking about our week and talking about our life and sharing our needs and our prayer requests and our fears and our concerns and our joys and the things we're celebrating. For us to have environments, for us to have those kinds of relationships, to have that kind of together togetherness, to push away uh, the desire to isolate and, and instead to draw close and be close to one another. It has become, as we all know, increasingly harder for us to have those kind of meaningful relationships, those deep, connected, intimate relationships with one another in friendship and in this type of koinonia. Uh, personally, I don't know what it is. It's probably a mixture of things. Sometimes I think it's just my age. Maybe this is what all 40-something-year-olds experience. Maybe if you're a 40-year-old, you can give me some feedback here. Is this, is this about my age, our age, or is, it, is that a different thing? Um, certainly, through these pandemic years, uh, the isolation and what have you, the world feels unsafe right now. There's so much uh, uncertainty about the future, so many things that we worried about. The world feels unsafe. I'm just, if I talk to you, am I going to catch a virus? Is that going to hurt me? Is that going to harm me? Or just uh, 
the longer and longer you live, the more relationships we have and the more times you get hurt by someone. The more times I've been hurt by someone. And every time I get hurt by another person, it honestly makes me a little bit more hesitant to be connected to others in the future. What if I give part of myself to them and they hurt me? Likewise, I've hurt people. And I have hesitancy to connect with others because I'm afraid, what if I hurt them in the future? Well, the way to avoid that is never get connected. That's human logic. And, and so all of these things begin to push us to isolation, begin to push, push us away from each other, to miss out on what the, this first century church experienced daily. Sociologists refer to things like uh, we find ourselves in a social recession, not just a financial recession, uh, but a social recession. Um, or they refer to the loneliness epidemic. It was something they said was in existence and, and happening in our culture and our society even before uh, the, the um, coronavirus pandemic uh, came, came to be, that we, were find, we found ourselves in a loneliness epidemic. There are lots of reasons for this, but there's something in me that won't let me turn inward. I don't know what it is. Actually, I do know what it is. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompting me. I've had moments in, over the past couple of years where I've said, oh, I'm too tired. I'm too tired for these relationships. I can't continue to, to give myself to these, to these relationships. And yet there's something in me that said, don't do it, Matthew. Don't turn inward. Don't, become, uh, don't, be, don't isolate yourself. Don't become selfish. Don't become self-consumed. You need to continue to give yourself to others. I sense it, and I know that it's, it's beyond myself, but I know it's God at work in me. I hope that you experience that. May that be something that happens in all of us. Uh, that the Spirit prompts us to devote ourselves to one another. We want this. We want you to not just uh, be involved in, uh, in Sunday gatherings. We want this for you. We want you to have these kinds of relationships. We want you to be in environments like Village and places where you can have connection to one another, where you can experience uh, deep and meaningful relationships with each other, that the Spirit would bind us together and make us one, that Jesus' prayer would continue to be answered in us. And so you may find yourself participating in Sundays and not be connected to the village. I encourage you to get connected to the village. Maybe you've gotten disconnected over the last year to get reconnected this year. The beginning of the semester, a time for renewal, a time for new things. Get reconnected to a village. If you've never been to a village, let us help you get connected. Uh, find someone at your site or someone, uh, go to our website and let us help you get connected to a village in your town where you can build these types of relationships. Now, let me caution you. Uh, you will find lots of reasons to not like village. We all can. The food wasn't that good or uh, those people were weird. Um, if you came to my village, you'd probably say, well, Matthew was weird. I don't doubt it. I've gotten socially, more and more socially awkward over the past couple of years. Again, maybe it's my age, but um, uh, it's going to get weird sometimes. You're going to be weird. I'm going to be weird. Let's press through it and let's push into these types of relationships that the Bible describes, this fellowship. Uh, let's devote ourselves to one another and see what God can do in us and through us. And for those of you who are not able, just as maybe you're joining on Resonate Live, I want you to know that if you're sitting by yourself watching this, I'm glad that you're here. And I want you also to know that that's not the end. That's not the complete expression and, and uh, experience of being a part of the church is simply engaging in Resonate Live and watching this video. You need to be connected to other people. And if you're not if you don't have the availability to engage with the village, um, we encourage you to engage uh, with the different tech that you have available that God has made and has provided for you today. The simple things like sending text messages or using your phone to actually make phone calls or to engage in whatever video call you can do to, to, to connect with other people. You need that. We're made for this. It's part of who we are as people. We need this. The third thing that they devoted themselves is to God's presence. 
Here's what I mean by that. It says that uh, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Um, it, they devoted themselves to what became known as the Lord's table, or what we call sometimes as communion. Um, it, was a, it was a practice that Jesus instituted when he met with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. He gave his body and he gave the wine and he said, this is my body, this is my blood that represent what I'm doing for you. I'm giving myself up for you. Um, take these things and remember what I've done for you. And it's a practice that the, the church has been doing for centuries now. Taking these elements and saying, uh, remembering what Christ has done for us. I like what, how J.D. Greer communicates about this passage. He says this, he's a pastor in North Carolina. Um, he says that the Lord's table was a specific time in which Jesus promised to be present in very special in a very special way. He's always present in worship, of course, but he's present in a special way during this time. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10:16 that we are participating in the presence of Christ itself when we celebrate the Lord's table or celebrate communion. Um, Throughout the early church, this has been understood in different ways and a, a, a wide spectrum of understanding of how do we apply this. And there have been times when it's been taken very literally when people say, hey, these elements of communion are the literal body and blood and we engage with Jesus in this way. And there's others uh, who take it more of a symbolic way. We as Baptists, we tend to be more symbolic people, as you know. And so we think it's a symbolic thing that represents who Christ is. But as we do this, we take communion together, which obviously we know in this pandemic season has become more and more difficult in, uh, in our gatherings. But even as we do that, we recognize that God is meeting us there in His presence, and we need to continue to do this, even just the very fact of what those, the symbolism pushes us towards, to remember what Christ has done as we relish in the gospel, as we uh, meditate on and think on and, and study and, and, and worship through repeating the gospel through our songs and through our teaching, um, that we would recognize that God's presence is meeting us there, well, oftentimes, because we think it is symbolic or we get in patterns uh, of this uh, in our worship, that um, we think that it's unimportant or becomes mundane. But we must never forget that God wants to invite us into His presence. That was one of the things that was so revolutionary, especially for the Jewish people in this moment, was them understanding and knowing that God was meeting, their, meeting them there and inviting, him, inviting them into His presence. This was something that was in, in the ancient Jewish religion was only reserved for some people, for the high priest to go into the temple in a special place in the temple where he could go in on behalf of the people and meet with God in the presence of God. But now, because of what Christ had done, he, uh, when, when Christ was crucified, and when he died, it says that that temple, it was in the temple, that secret place, the curtain that held that secret place back was torn from top to bottom, was opened up, symbolizing and representing that that part is open to everyone now. And through the Holy Spirit that shows up in Acts chapter 2, invites us all into the presence of God. And so uh, the people in, in Acts chapter 2, they were relishing and engaging the presence of God and enjoying breaking, uh, the breaking of bread, of, of remembering what Christ has done on their behalf and expecting the presence of God to meet them there. I think that's a great question for us as a church to ask ourselves. When we gather together, whether it's in our Sunday gatherings or in our villages or in our huddles or when we just see each other, do you expect God to meet you there? As a church, do you have an expectant um, hope and joy that fills you when you say, hey, I'm going to meet with the church, whatever environment that's in, a big or a small group? Do you have a joy that says, God's going to meet me there? The presence of God will be there as we meet together. And do you look forward to those times? Or do you just get in the pattern and habits of routine? to say, hey, I just go because that's what I do? Or do you show up and you say, well, I hope I'm at least 
mildly entertained by this performance of a band and a monologue? Um, do you hope that the food's good at Village and then you have some pleasant conversation? Or do you go expecting God to meet you there, to speak to you through uh, the worship, through the teaching, through the community that you meet with? Resonate Church, may we be a people that are devoted to being in God's presence, that give ourselves, to give our time, to give our energy to be in God's presence with one another. Verse 43, just after this, says that all came upon every soul, that this community of people found themselves worshiping and in awe of God. They had an expectation that they would meet together daily, whether they were going to the temple, whether they were listening to the apostles' teachings, whether they were gathering in prayer with the, with the church, that, that God was meeting them there and they were in awe of what they saw God doing. They had an expectation and it prompted them to worship. And some translations will say they were in fear of God. They were overwhelmed. They trembled. Maybe they fell to their knees as they worshiped Him. And they were in awe of what He was doing in their midst as they devoted themselves to this. Number four, the thing, thing that they devoted themselves to was prayer. These first chapters of Acts, we see continuous patterns of prayer. That the people of God prayed constantly. If they, uh, if they had needs, they prayed about it. If they knew someone else in their community had needs, they prayed about it. Um, if they were scared because of what was happening around them and happening to them, they prayed about it. Um, if they were in trouble or someone in their community was in trouble, being thrown in jail, they prayed about it. They would have all-night prayer meetings praying for the people um, that were in, they were in trouble. The people prayed. In fact, before this happened, what were the disciples doing as they waited? As Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, what were they doing? They were praying. In Acts 1.14, it said they gathered together. Disciples were there and the women who were part of uh, their group and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, everybody was there and they were praying. And so if we think about this, when we read this chapter, um, what we see is that they've been praying for 10 days from when Jesus left to when Pentecost happened was 10 days long. They've been praying for 10 days. And we see this sermon that Peter preaches, if you read through it, it's about 10 minutes long. And then you see 3,000 people added to their number. The biggest work that happened there was the Holy Spirit coming responding to their prayer, them preparing for those moments in prayer. And for us as a church, we need to be a people of prayer. If we want to see God, this is, this is not new. You've heard us say it multiple times, and it's all over Scripture, that we need to be a praying people. For us to be communicating with God, connecting with God in prayer, together praying and presenting our requests to God, praising God, giving thanks to God. For the early church, it was almost a, res a reflexive response to whatever was happening. Uh, it was the natural overflow um, for them. It wasn't just a habit that they had at mealtimes. It wasn't a transition that they used in the worship services. They prayed about everything. Um, and they wanted it because they wanted to take advantage of this new closeness that they had with God. Once again, someone else would pray and offer up prayers on their behalf in the temple. Um, they would just hope he did a good job as he asked for God's forgiveness for them on their behalf. But now they get to go to God by themselves. The priesthood of all believers is, is the doctrine that's communicated through this, is that we all get to go to God in prayer. And so the people are like, this is awesome. I get to talk to God. I get to talk to the God of the universe. We together get to gather, get to gather together and present our requests to Him, to come to Him. And they love doing it, apparently. And for us as a church, we need to ask ourselves, do we embrace that same privilege that, that we have to pray to God? Do you trust that Jesus is praying for you just as he said he would? Um, do you believe that the Holy Spirit will prompt you to prayer? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is praying for you even when you don't know what to pray? When you're overwhelmed in a situation, uh, do you believe that, G that the Holy Spirit is praying for you? And are you willing to meet him there and say, 
uh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to know what to pray in these moments. Acts 2 shows us that nothing that we do is done alone. That the Holy Spirit is with us, is guiding us and leading us. Uh, I love Galatians chapter 5 that Paul's writing urges us to keep in step with the Spirit, uh, to be in step with Him, and in that to be praying. The Holy Spirit is with us and is drawing us to the Father. And prayer is the most natural reaction to that reality. There's been times in my life when I've found myself in a tricky situation or emergency or difficult, difficult moments. And, uh, and I've been, as I reflected on those moments, I've been kind of proud of myself when I think about it. I was like, man, my initial response was to go to God in prayer. I remember one time I got in a car wreck and the first words that came out of my mouth was uh, I just called out the name of Jesus. I just said, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they were honest prayers. I was terrified in the moment and I was worried about my passenger. I was worried about the person in the other car. I felt fine, but what about my vehicle? Am I about to get hit? It was a crazy moment. And I just called out to Jesus in that moment. As I reflected, I was like, wow, I'm glad that that's what I said. I didn't cuss. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't freak out, but I called on Jesus. Uh, there's been other moments in my life when, uh, when I'm not so proud of. Uh, but when my wife prompts me, I believe, because she, she, she's good at this, uh, and I think she's prompted by the Holy Spirit. But we'll be meeting with someone or uh, have, you know, counseling someone in the church or uh, having a conversation with someone and just say, hey, you should pray. I was like, oh, you're right, I should pray. This is the moment we should be praying. This should be a normal greeting that we have together as, as believers. This should be a normal way that we leave conversation with one another is to pray for each other. Even if it's brief and light, we should be praying for one another. And I love that my wife promised me in that. And, uh, and I, love, I would love for that to become more of a common practice in our church. That as we leave a conversation and we pray for one another. The ramifications of the way that the people, the early church, devoted themselves um, is seen throughout the remaining verses of this passage. As we get through this, we see that the way they acted and reacted and lived towards each other was profound, was different. Um, it says that they were selflessly generous. They began to sell their possessions so they could provide for one another. They began to give to each other, began to selflessly use their time and their possessions. They spent so much time together in these different venues and their places, opening their homes, opening their stuff, giving to one another. The needs of each other were met. Uh, and then it began to be noticed by the people in Jerusalem. Um, they had favor with everyone. And these days and these initial responses to the gospel, they had favor with everyone. The whole city was like, what is happening among these people? These people that are responding to this message about Jesus. And then it says that God added to their number. They didn't just become an a, a inward-focused group, um, but others began to pay attention to this, and God's mission, the purpose that He had for them, was, begin, was already being fulfilled, was being accomplished in them and through them. From this beginning from this genesis of the church, from this birth of the church, it began to spread. As we continue to read through the book of Acts, as we study ancient uh, history and the history of the early church, the environment's changed, but these devotions remain present in the church. And as the church got broader, uh, got into the broader ancient world, they became what Tim Keller calls uh, a contrast community or a counterculture that was both offensive and yet attractive to many. The outsiders didn't understand it, but they were intrigued by it. And many of them wanted to join it. And many of them did. This contrast community, that they, the way they did things because of what they devoted themselves to, to the apostles' teaching of understanding who God is and His ways, to each other, willing to sacrifice what they had for each other, to give themselves to one another. 
the way they engaged God in prayer like no one else did, the way they expected to engage the presence of God when they gathered together like no one else did, like no other worshipers of other religions did in the first century. It changed the way they viewed themselves. It changed the way they viewed the world around them. That we began to see the overflow that we mentioned before, that cultures began to be, cha- be changed, the values of culture, the things that we hold is like, this is great, hospitals are great, I'm so thankful for those. Uh, they began to change how people treated others, the sick, uh, the poor, those in need. They changed things because of what they devoted themselves to. Resonate Church, our world is increasingly becoming a place that needs a representation in their midst like this. A tangible expression of who God is expressed through His people as they are one, connected to one another, devoted to Him, and living out His ways on a daily basis. There are lots of good ideas that we could have about how do we change the world and how do we influence culture, but none of those will be the ideas that actually change culture unless they are found in our devotion to God. As Jesus said, you can do nothing without me. If we, don't, if we try to do it without him, uh, there's no use in even trying. Change of our culture, of our cities, of the cities we're going to in the future, of the campuses that we do ministry on, will not happen unless we are devoted to God and devoted to one another. Resonate Church, may we be a people who devote ourselves to God and to each other. And may it be the most irresistible thing that people experience this side of heaven for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for pursuing us. We thank you that you chose to be devoted to us, to give yourself to us. And God, may we now, in response through the power of your Holy Spirit, devote ourselves back to you, to give ourselves to you, And in doing so, may we devote ourselves to one another, to love one another, to be connected to one another in deep, meaningful, intimate relationships that frankly more and more become look look starkly different than the way the rest of the world relates to one another. God, give us the blessing of having those kinds of healthy relationships within our church with each other. God, bring us there. Do that in us. We love you, God. We ask you to do this work in us. I ask you to answer this prayer that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago. Make us one with you and with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.